I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Trevor Cummings, the host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And I have my dear friend, Mr. Sean Latimer, here to do the podcast with me today. Good morning. Sound the applause. Ha. <laughs> How you doing this morning? Doing great. So here's my first question for you. I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, okay. You told me this morning uh, when we were playing basketball, you were like, man, I don't know how you come up with new ideas on what to write on every week. Yeah. You can be honest with me. I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a, I'm a big boy. Is this a new topic? Kind of. I okay. feel, well, the, the problem is I feel like when it comes to personal finance and planning, there's a lot of things that kind of blend together. And so I, I feel like we will talk about certain subjects and I, I feel bad because I'm like, I think I said the exact same thing like three weeks ago, but... It is a different topic, technically. Perfect. I'm okay with that. I'll take the I'll take the technical answer. It is funny though. You're saying like you can say the same thing over podcast to podcast, but even in client conversations, you can find yourself saying the same thing over and over again. That's true. And finding people making I say this with all due respect, but the same mistakes, right? Yeah. No. That that is true. And things that we would think here here's a good example. Like when and you may have referenced it when interest rates came down and people were refinancing. And almost everyone you talk to re- refinance their mortgage, right? And then you would come across someone every now and then that was still paying, you know, 5%. And you kind of looked at them like, oh, I'm surprised you didn't refinance. And like, oh, yeah, maybe I should. And you look into it more. You should absolutely do it. And it, it would surprise me how sometimes people were just unaware. And I think that it's very similar right now that they just assume with interest rates higher that money market funds pay a higher interest rate. So their savings account at their bank must be paying a higher interest rate. And I think you did a, a survey, right? Uh, tell me more. What survey did oh, I Oh, I thought you asked about like a handful of people if they knew. And maybe it was an unofficial survey. And they were all like wrong on what the interest rate was. Oh, no. Yeah, that's a good question. So I filled in for David Bonson on DC Today this week. And at the end of DC Today, we always have like an Ask Trevor or an Ask David or an Ask Brian question. So the question I put in there is I've gotten quite a few people to me said like, hey, uh, I have some surplus savings at, at my bank. What should I be doing with it? And so I just wanted to address the question in kind of like that corporate setting. It's difficult, though, when you're like essentially trying to give advice to a lot of different people in different circumstances. But all I was trying to get across is if you look at the major banks, um, and I use bank rate as a reference, right, easy reference point, that the national average, I think it was something like 0.23% is what the national average for savings account at banking institutions, right? 23 basis points. And then if you looked at the top three institutions, it was something like 10 basis points. So I know people have all different theories and thoughts on how much cash they want to hold. That really wasn't what I was trying to answer. I was just saying, if you are holding cash, right? And it is obviously um, intuitive that you just hold it at your bank. But the problem is, is that the banks aren't paying significant interest, right? Um, but that doesn't stop your expenses from going up mm-hmm. because of inflation. So I was saying, hey, a really simple thing that a saver could do, somebody with cash, is they could do some pretty simple research and look at what options do I have out there for a money market account, right? Something liquid I can tap into, I'm not taking risk, and has some sort of interest rate. And I referenced it in the article. One of the custodians that we often use, um, you can look it up, their seven-day yield on their money market account, it was in the range of 4.5%, a little bit less. I think it was 4.48%. It's a big difference, right? Hmm. If you're talking about getting 10 basis points, also known as 
0.1%, right? We say basis points because it rolls off the tongue easier. The difference between getting 10 basis points and 448 basis points, that's 45x, you know what I mean? And when you start talking about people that maybe have significant amounts in savings accounts, like let's say you're a church or let's say you're an endowment and um, like part of your mandate, you know, I I know you work with uh, some institutions like that. Part of your mandate is that you can only own cash or cash-like securities. Well, on a million dollars, 10 basis points is $1,000 a year, right? 450 basis points is... $45,000 $45,000 a year. For some of those institutions, that's like somebody's salary, yeah. right? That's a big difference. I'm glad you put a dollar amount on it too, because sometimes we talk about basis points and percentages, but then, you know, if someone did have a million dollars in savings and uh, you said, oh yeah, there's a $40,000 difference that might get their ears to perk up. Be like, oh wow, that is a big difference. Yeah, a $44,000 difference 44, in, yeah, in exactly. this little illustration. And it's funny, this could be a good learning opportunity for our listeners we're not intending to use like financial language, but when you're talking about interest rates and you're using numbers that are less than 1%, basis points become easier because it's very hard sometimes to be like 0.1% or 0.2% and someone to understand the difference. So um, all we're saying there is if something was 1%, another way to say it is 100 basis points. Yeah, I, uh, I'm having something interesting happen now that treasuries and money market funds are paying such a high interest rate that uh our dear friends those market timers they go well you know i really don't feel good about the market right now so why wouldn't i get a two-year treasury and guarantee myself five percent that just seems really good and (laughs) i feel like i can talk to them blue in the face but if someone already has that feeling it's really hard to convince them otherwise and what is your typical response so because I'm asking you that because I've probably gotten that same question five times in the last three days and sometimes from one person twice. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So we, we've talked and um, we've talked about this before. On yeah, and a reference podcast. in the article. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh, the, there is an opportunity cost that if we agree that equities or other asset classes are going to have a higher total return over time, then you're pretty much just saying, I'm okay with not pacing on that. Well, their response was, uh, so so I'll break that down even more. So I'm pretty much saying that you're giving up an average return of 7 or 8% over time, and you're saying it's okay to get 5 for the next two. And and then what are you going to do after those two years? Then you may be renewing a two-year treasury at 3%, and then you're a lot further behind that 7 or 8% number. Their response is, well, I think that uh, bad things are coming, and the market won't give that return for the next two years. So I'm going to not only outperform for the next two years, but if something bad does happen, then I'm a better buying opportunity. And I, sometimes I talk to him blue in the face and I'm like, I, okay, do whatever you want. Yeah. And the, I think one thing that you're drawing out there, and you can let me know if you agree, I, I kind of talk about in the conclusion here where I'm saying we're living in unique times, right? Uh, inflation is higher than you know we've seen in the last handful of decades. Interest rates are higher than we've seen in the last handful of decades. But what hasn't changed? Fear and anxiety, yep. right? Since the beginning of time. So the, f- should I say fun? I don't know if it's fun, but the fun thing about that conversation <laughs> is that where you're really getting to the conclusion, I think you hit on it, is like, okay, like then you're convinced that you can time the markets really well. That's where we disagree. Um, I'm electing, me, Trevor Cummings, and you can you know make this oath too, that I am not a good market timer. 
So I am absolutely telling you, I have no idea what the stock market does over the next 24 months. I don't. I would probably give a better guess on who's going to win the NBA Finals this year than try to guess where the market's going to be. You're shaking your head because it's not true, but I couldn't get either of those right. <laughs> so, um, But I, I love to get back to this. The Wall Street Journal, for some time, I don't know if they still do it, but they did a survey of economists, and they said, hey, over the next six months, um, two choices, right? Really narrow it down. Yeah. Are interest rates going to be higher or lower? And in that survey, over a long time period, the economists had a hit rate less than 50%, Yeah, which makes absolutely no sense, uh, which if I flipped a coin, I, I would have had better odds guessing. So what is that telling us? doesn't matter how much you know. Trying to predict things in the short term is impossible. And if you get it right once, whew, you should be scared because it's going to build some hubris or some um, false confidence that you have some sort of skill set that you can do it again. And if you do, you should open up an investment shop. Yes, that's exactly what we say. And I, I talked about it a little bit at the end of the article. I wanted to focus the article of saying, hey, here's a really normal practice between a client and an advisor. Build a balance sheet, right? Most people don't have one. So you sit down with somebody and you say, hey, let's look at all of your assets and all of your liabilities. Again, finance words, right? Assets and liabilities. Let's just let's look at all your savings accounts, your retirement accounts, your investment accounts, your college savings for your kids, and let's put it on one side of the piece of paper. Then on the other side, let's look at your credit card balances. Let's look at your mortgages, uh, any sort of debt you have. Let's get on one piece of paper a snapshot of your entire financial life, right? Because from that point, you now have like a mosaic or a puzzle of how all things fit together. And for an advisor, that's when advice and guidance surfaces right to the top. And one of the things I mentioned in the article, and you talked about it a little bit, for the last, I don't know how long, five, six years or whatever, when I built that balance sheet, my eyes went straight to the right side, to the liabilities and say, how can I save this person money by reducing their expenses? What did I mean by that? Interest rates were... Uh, had a secular trend of going down. Yeah. So if if you could just continue to refinance debt, it was opportunistic on the expense side. Now, there's been a violent change where interest rates have gone up. So what does the advisor do? They just turn their eyes to the other side. They now look at the left-hand side and they look at, oh, um, look at this cash savings. Can we upgrade the interest rate on your cash savings? Yeah, and like you illustrated and we talked about earlier, it, it can be a pretty big difference in dollars. And when we're building financial plans for people, all we're really doing is reverse engineering the math and saying, okay, this is what your future expenses will be. Now, how are we going to pay for those expenses? Where do we take from first? Do you have social security? And if you have a large cash, cash position, not paying a lot of interest, that's a, the low hanging fruit. Yeah. And I want to challenge even our listeners to think about inflation a different way. Inflation is almost an incentive for you to allocate your money sooner than later. And when I say allocate, I mean either investing it or spending it, right? And we just make up a number. Let's say I had $50,000, right? And it was earmarked to buy a vehicle. If we assumed in my little hypothetical bubble I'm making that the cost of that vehicle is going to continue to go up and I technically need it today, 
when is the best time to buy it? Now, right? Because my buying power with that cash is deteriorating. So if we're all in agreement that there's some level of inflation out there, that all of us are feeling some level of increase on our expenses, then we have to be um, considering how much we're holding in cash and how much buying power we're losing there, right? And if that means taking future expenses and bringing them into today, that can be a solution. Now, I, I don't really have a, There's only so many things you could do that for. Yeah, there is. So at least if you can take your cash, and who knows, right? Let's just get within the right zip code and say you can earn 4% or 45 or we talked about even short-term treasuries at 5%. Um, that's pretty important. All that is, it's retaining the buying power for your cash, you know, you and I, we used to work in the fitness industry and we would encourage people as I'm saying this and I don't do this, I don't, uh, I'm going to feel slight conviction, but a little bit of weight training, right? All the time is just for retaining like muscle mass, right? Uh, you don't use it, you lose it. So it's the same thing here. Uh, there's a shelf life to your cash. And if you just leave it in a traditional savings account, there is this natural entropy that's happening. Yeah, we used to make jokes about, you know, grandma and grandpa buried a bunch of money in the backyard and then you they think they left you a fortune and then 30 years go by and you're like, oh, gee, thanks. I 10 grand is, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully more than carton of milk. But yeah, that that is a good example. Or is it eggs? Eggs are really expensive, Eggs right? are crazy right now. Yeah, so stop eating eggs. Well, um, we don't want to beat this point up too much, but one thing that I did put at the end, and, and one of my clients actually led me, uh, to Warren Buffett's annual letter, um, she was saying, hey, like there's a little part in there about dividend growth. You should check it out. And I was like really encouraged by it. What I love about Warren Buffett is his, his intent in his writing is to make it understandable for most. So I think what he's saying there, and I'm going to encourage you to go read it, is really going to help solidify this idea of the difference between short-term monies and long-term monies. What Sean and I didn't do today and what we don't intend to do today is give you advice on how much you should have in cash, right? That's a different podcast. It's a different conversation. It's probably a conversation meant for one-on-one, cross the table, look at your own situation, your aspirations, your own comforts, and, and decipher that. All we're saying is that when you first study a balance sheet, is there low-hanging fruit to make improvements, right? At the end of the article, I referenced it a couple times, the meat and potatoes of financial planning is to improve organization, efficiency, and outcomes. Uh, and that's kind of, like I said, low-hanging fruit when you look at cash. But what Buffett writes in his article is he references two companies he's owned for a really long time. And in my mind, that's his long-term wealth accumulation bucket. And in the last paragraph, he says, hey, now let's go back to whatever year he's referencing, 1994. And let's say I just bought a long-term fixed instrument, right? And he talks about, hey, now let's run that forward. How many years would that be? However many years, 25 years or 30 years. Um, now let's run that forward to today and let's see what those outcomes look like. And the crazy thing about that, that was a really good time to buy. Interest rates were high, yeah. right? Like that would be a, a very good time to buy one of those instruments. But you start to see how different that horse race is from you know short-term fixed income, I don't want to call them conservative, but in that bucket type investments compared to something for long-term wealth accumulation. And I think it would serve clients so well, it would serve investors so well if 
they could get that framing right and bifurcate those two. And, and I joked about this because David says it a lot. I think I said it earlier in the podcast, but that idea of just comparing apples and carburetors, right? <laughs> it's like not even apples and oranges. It's just like, let's go really different. So it's almost that the premise of the question, should I sell all my stocks and buy a treasury? It, it's missing that like philosophical framing for how you should be approaching financial planning. And we, we still see it in more recent history, you know, after financial crisis, I, I know that I've seen statements where people went to fixed income at in 2010, 2011, because they were kind of traumatized about the market and really at the worst possible time, because they locked in a low interest rate for five, six years when uh, equities were doing well. And then you kind of see the same thing happening during COVID, you know, people go spooked by the market, go to cash, uh, and then they kind of miss that recovery and that rally. And so it, uh, History repeats itself. You know what it reminds me so much of? Golf. Because I feel like if you go out and play around, it, maybe this is just me because I want you're a golfer. So, but when I go out and play around, try to play golf. <laughs> yeah. When I go out and play a round of golf, I'm not good at scoring, so I'm not like even getting in that realm. But man, all I remember is like that one shot. Right? Yeah. I was 100 yards out. I put it two feet from the cup, so I could shoot 100. But all I'm thinking, like, I get home, how was it? Oh, this one shot right. on the, the 10th hole. Like, it was just unreal, right? Um, because I, I don't know if that's just the way that we're wired, but investing is so similar, is that we just remember a few good golf shots, but we don't have somebody following us around and nudging us on opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, do you remember, like, you're talking like 2010, 2013, where you sat out? And, and nobody's sitting there with the financial calculator to say, hey, you at your opportunity cost for you know a prudent financial plan would have had you allocate like this. You actually missed out on $300,000, right? right? But those numbers are meaningful when yeah. you look at it. Uh, but we have that golf mentality where we just remember that one chip shot and we don't remember the actual full scorecard. Very true. So with that, we'll close it out. It, it's pretty simple. It's one of those uh, thoughts on money where you can actually just go take action. Uh, you can go look at your own bank account and you can connect with your advisor. I know I've been connecting with a ton of clients this week that are like, oh, I think there's some opportunities to shave a little bit from savings that I don't need for my recurring expenses and just moving it to really simple money market accounts, right? Staying within their comfort level on the allocation they want to have for cash earmarked expenses, um, taxes, whatever it might be, but making sure that we are playing defense against inflation and earning the fair interest rate that's out there, not leaving any money on the table. So anything you want to close out with? Nope. Sounds good. So we will ask a favor that you rate the podcast. All comments are welcome. An easy way to get a hold of Sean or myself is to email uh, that is Tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. We'll take any of your questions, comments, encouragements, whatever you'd like to send our way. Uh, and we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future 
performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.